I keep saying there's nothing sexier than integrity. There's nothing, there's nothing more powerful than that. And uh, you, you look at, and, and you don't need characters to be deeply flawed or broken to be interesting. And if they're deeply flawed and, flawed and broken, can we have them on a redemptive healing journey? Yeah. But I, I look at Captain America, when, the Winter Soldier, look at that film. You have, just like Chris Reeves' Superman, you have this really moral, honest, kind character of integrity in a really messed up world. Uh, Bruce Wayne in the Dark Knight trilogy is the same way. Right? And that is fascinating, and that's compelling, and we need more examples of that. The story is people often write or create art for therapy, but how often are we consuming art for therapeutic purposes, and is it effective? How often are we unintentionally consuming messages for better or worse that alter our perspectives, therefore our experience? Today we discuss the realities and possibilities of cinema as therapy. I'm Joel Ackerman. Joined by Stephanie Casperson in the booth, and this is Lightwise. Jonathan Decker is a licensed therapist. His friend and associate Alan Seawright is an Emmy Award-winning filmmaker. Together they make up a dynamic duo that analyzes films from a psychological perspective, claiming to make sense of life one blockbuster at a time with their YouTube channel called Cinema Therapy. Alan, Jonathan, Joel. Joel. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, so is that how you describe what you do from a, from a psychological perspective? Or how do you describe to people who haven't seen your channel, uh, Cinema Therapy, how do you describe what you do and, and the way you analyze movies? Uh, I've always described it as it's Siskel and Ebert meets Mr. Rogers. Yeah. Okay. And so you're... <laughs> I've seen your show and I'm going, hmm, okay, but keep going. You've been skipping the part where we change our shoes and put on sweaters. That's fine. The, the idea is how do, you, how do you share actual research-based psychological information on healthy relationships, on coping with trauma, on mental health and emotional wellness? How do you share that in a way that is fun and digestible but still accurate? Yeah. And so the idea was never to make, one of our fans described it as, it's not pop psychology, it's actual psychology with a flavoring of pop culture. With a pop culture lens. Yeah. 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 Okay, so it's almost ver reverse. You came at it wanting to communicate the, the uh, psychology and you're using the cinema as the medicine to help the, or the sugar, the to, sugar help the to help the medicine go down. down. Yeah. Exactly. Um, okay, right on. What I want to talk about today is a little bit different, a little twist on that but is the idea of using cinema as therapy, right? Mm, sure. And the potential that it has to help us with our mental health, our coping, et cetera. Uh, obviously, I've heard of and even done a little bit of art therapy. Sure. Okay? Mm -hmm. There's music therapy. There's equine therapy. I'm wondering, is film therapy a thing? And if not, should it be? It is. I'm certified. Uh, oh, before cool. we, before we started the show, long long before. Yeah, so I, I went online and got certified in cinema therapy, and at least at that time, it was seen as supplemental. It it was not a, a specific approach in and of itself. So if you're a therapist, you could use cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, dialectical behavioral therapy, narrative therapy, different styles, and the cinema was meant to supplement and bolster that. And the idea is always okay, what does this look like an application? Or what does this yeah. not look like an application to take something abstract 
and make it more concrete. And we say this on the show. In real life, what we're seeing here on film, this is actually a pretty accurate representation, but they have to do it in two hours. In right. real life, it's going to take two or three years. It's going to take two or three months, but yeah. And what what does it look like? I mean, uh, like, <laughs> how, do you, how do you select the films? Are they watching the full films? Are they watching the films with you in the office? Is it something you go home, watch it, and then we come? Like, what does it look like? Is it uh, take two Pixar's and call me in the morning? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, would be, I could be so wealthy if I just I did know, that. Right? I don't know why I'm even slumming it with you. My gosh. Seriously. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it varies. For some therapists, it looks like we've got a TV in the office. We're going to watch a clip and we're going to discuss it together. And, and here's, we'll pull it up on YouTube. Uh, for a lot of therapists, it's here's my recommendation and this is the film I want you to watch. And it's always here's what I want you to be looking for. Here's the questions I want you to search for answers to while you're watching. Okay. And yeah, how, how often is it that you have to kind of tell them? This is what you should be getting from this clip, and how, <laughs> or, or do you fully expect them to draw the meaning for themselves? Well, and and Alan talks about uh, you know at, at the top of every show. This this is something that Alan came up with. Is I'm Jonathan Decker. I'm a licensed therapist who loves movies. And I'm Alan Seawright. I'm a professional filmmaker who needs therapy. And just like any other good therapy, because I'm I'm kind of the clinical end, and Alan is the experienced end of. I, I Alan can tell you what it feels like to be in therapy and to and yep. to go through it. I've done a little bit. I should probably do more, but I've, <laughs> I've done no, no, no. a little bit on the couch. But I do most of it in the chair. Um, and good therapy is about letting people find their own conclusions. Yeah. And good art is like that too. It absolutely is. And that the the approach I think that you generally take with your clients in cinema therapy is, you know, giving them a prescription. Here's a film to watch. Here's a character to study. Here's what to look for, uh, and think about. But draw your own conclusions, and then next session we're gonna discuss it and we're going to talk about what you learned how you can apply it to yourself that kind of thing so it's yeah. it's it's guided but self-actualized that sounds no that's that good. sounds that's like good. i went to school yeah and you right? did i did not for <laughs> the glasses prove it Look hey <laughs> well and and that's i have had times where i'm like well okay this is what i want them to get out of it so i'm sure they're going to come back and say this was my takeaway and we're right in sync and that happens, but I'm very often surprised that they zig when I thought they were going to zag. And mm -hmm. sometimes their zig is far more powerful than my zag. I said, oh, what you took from it is far better than what I was thinking you would get from it. And, and then that's other, when you do the, uh, yes, exactly. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I wanted you to go for. And then other times it's kind of like, okay, let's combine what you took from it and what I was hoping you'd see, and let's combine that and merge that together. Same as if you do any other homework or reading that you give people. Yeah. So what's the, what's the line between... Um, you know, using this as uh, using film or TV, I assume you also sometimes recommend TV stuff mm -hmm. um, between using that as a um, like an escape. Right. Yeah. And in, in other words, what are the conditions that are necessary? And maybe you can speak to this, Alan. What are the conditions that are necessary to change your viewing experience? Is it just a little bit of mindfulness or like to change your consumption of media from escapism or entertainment to therapy uh, i mean speaking personally it's it, it is sometimes mindfulness you know unlocks little little nuggets of information and little little tidbits of you know self-improvement uh but generally speaking crisis unlocks change <laughs> <laughs> so just having the so issue. just just having a, a major crisis you'll suddenly start to find all kinds of meaning all over the place yeah uh, particularly if a professional is like hey 
here's a way to you know unlock maybe some some hope and some meaning for you. Uh, you can find things where you wouldn't expect to. As as a film buff, because I'm I'm not in the industry, but I I really do love movies. I'm just crazy about them. I think it's the highest art form, as long as you're dealing with film and not content, because Alan hates that word. <laughs> the word content. Uh, as long as you're dealing with, with actual film, because if you think about it, think of all the other forms of art, from sculpture to painting to architecture to wardrobe or, or fashion design to acting and performance to choreography music. to martial arts to music. It's all there in film. It's all combined. Yep. And so I think there's such a way there's you talk about enjoying entertainment, enjoying a movie, and that's true, you can also enjoy it with your brain turned on and suddenly there's multiple levels going on, which is why for ADHD folks, it's a perfect medium to enjoy because there's, there's so many things for there's, the brain to connect with. It's triggering everything all at once. And when it comes to actually viewing mindfully, I, I think if you're just open to, I'm going on an emotional journey and I'm experiencing by proxy what the character's going through, I think it happens naturally. I think this is why we love good stories. I mean, I don't think people needed a YouTube channel or a, a therapeutic approach called cinema therapy for them to take meaning from stories that helps them in their lives. Yeah. All we're doing is really like really accentuating it and, and opening up things that maybe people hadn't considered. But people do this naturally with stories that they encounter. That's what makes stories so powerful. Well, this is what I've been doing my entire life. The reason I work in film is because movies always spoke to me on a, such a deep emotional gut level uh and i mean storytelling in general i love reading novels i love playing video games there's a lot to be said for that but but movies have been such a huge part of my subconscious for my entire life that when jonathan proposed to me like hey let's let's actually use these therapeutic concepts and help lots of people it immediately was just like a it was just yes because yeah. it's it, you got it immediately. I got it immediately, and I knew that if I got it, I wouldn't be the only one. Right, right. So. So, okay, Steph, you have yeah, a question. Yeah, yeah. So, hi, in Steph. Light, hi. <laughs> in light of all of that, I'm really curious how you put together your content. Do you sit down together and say, this is what we feel like the world needs right now? Or does it start from, you know, like what movies impact yeah. you, you know, personally? I mean, because you, you have the platform to take something that's come out that is impactful and say, I think this message will resonate at this moment. Have you done that? Well, Steph, can I call you Steph? Sorry. Yes, please. What the world needs now is love. Right. Sweet love. <laughs> Sweet Amen. Love. Uh, the, the short version of that is we very much, um, there's a two-pronged approach. We either look at what is something that we've been thinking about a lot lately, you know, therapeutically, that we mm -hmm. really want to get across, and what's a good movie that has broad appeal that's going to reach a lot of people where we can talk about that. Uh, and then the other approach is a, a movie first approach where it's like, hey, there's a new DreamWorks movie coming out. DreamWorks movies are big hits. What can we pull from that and how can we help people you know, from this specific film? And that's, that's really 99% yeah. of our shows are one of those two things. We're looking for a therapeutic concept or where we know we have a movie that we're gonna need to talk about and what can we pull out of that? How much of therapy, not just, I mean, obviously film is storytelling, but how much of therapy is storytelling, stories we tell ourselves, mm -hmm. you know, story construction, narrative construction? 
It's funny you should bring that up, and Alan's heard me say this a lot. There's a lot of modalities. One that I'm really drawn to, but then I'm a story person, is called narrative therapy. Mm -hmm. And narrative therapy is literally about crafting the story of what your life is. And what's fun about narrative therapy and empowering about narrative therapy is, okay, here's the predetermined things. These are the facts. By predetermined, I mean they've already happened, so post-determined. These are the facts of your life. Those don't change. But what's going to free you up to heal is changing the meaning. Right. That that if I if I've encountered a trauma, if I've encountered abuse, that if I'm in a lane where I'm a victim, of rewriting the narrative so I'm a survivor, and then from survivor to advocate, and from advocate to thriver, the facts don't change. I'm a victim of abuse. Right. I, I endured abuse, but I I have taken myself to on this hero's journey, if you will, and it's not wish fulfillment, and it's not just talking myself into nice things. It's actually empowering myself to flip the script and reframe things to a powerful place. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, this is the style of therapy that was most effective for me. I, yeah. I did some cognitive behavioral and I was fine and I did some other things. And then I, I started meeting with a therapist that without explicitly saying, we're going to do narrative therapy, just started recontextualizing all mm. the stories I was telling. And, and yeah. that worked because I got to tell a new story about myself. Yeah. It sounds really powerful. Just, just in case we have listeners who've had that experience, can you name just off the top of your head, some films, uh, like, I guess, yeah, some films or TV shows that would, that would help a person go on that journey. We don't have to get into the specifics of how, but yeah. Uh, well, and I think we can both name some, yeah. we did a goodwill hunting episode. That's very powerful. The whole, it's not your fault scene yeah. is, is, is what's called in therapy, a reframe. Yep. Okay. Right. Uh, that Matt Damon's character was abused, but the reframe is it's not your fault. And you've been you've been cognitively saying it's not my fault, but emotionally you believed your whole life that it is. Yes. And actually letting go of that and letting the, your abuser own that is healing, right? So Goodwill Hunting is an example. Anything else? Uh, if you look at the story of Loki across the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe, he goes from, uh, his journey is, is one of retelling his own story a whole bunch of times. And he finally settles on a story where he gets to, to be a hero and then he gets killed. Uh, <laughs> You're in a movie-making studio. Mm -hmm. what, what, what do we need to be making, gentlemen? What, what messages are mm. not being made that need to be made for, for individuals and the mental health of society at large? First of all, I want to thank anyone involved with Angel Studios. I'm looking at camera now. That was awkward. Uh, <laughs> first of all, I want to thank everyone involved at Angel, Angel Studios because I love the idea of faith-focused films. I haven't loved the execution <laughs> generally. It, yep. Um, and Angel with, with the chosen, with his only son, with things that I've seen, there's an emphasis on here's what a good story told looks like, <laughs> yes. you know, and, and, and it's a good story. It happens to have faith in it. Yeah. And so I, first of all, so hats off to all of you. Second of all, uh, there's a trend towards the, the bias has always been that healthy relationships are boring and we're seeing more and more, media that's being put out that's saying otherwise. One of our favorite examples, maybe a little salty for your audience, but Ted Lasso uh, is a great example yep. of people modeling emotional maturity, not at every single moment, but they always get there and they grow there. Yeah, and that's, I think, one of the things that makes that specific example so powerful is uh, because people grow and, and get to a place, mm -hmm. that's what we're all doing too. Yeah, none of us are perfect models of emotional maturity all the time, except Jonathan. Um, <laughs> because there is so much media, I think audiences are getting a lot more savvy, and they're starting to mm. sniff out the the easy story tropes. Right. Yeah. And because the easy stuff has been mined, 
the more difficult stuff is the more nuanced stuff. Yeah. And that tends to lead to, in a satisfying way, it leads to more, you know, emotionally mature outcomes. Obviously, I, I, in a bad way, it can also lead to Breaking Bad. Yeah. yeah well, and here, I like Breaking Bad, though. And the reason I like Breaking Bad is it doesn't glamorize. No. It, it, it is very much a morality tale and a tragedy. And I think, speaking of what needs to be seen is healthy portrayed as healthy and unhealthy portrayed as unhealthy. unhealthy yeah. I've watched a lot of romantic comedies where, where a very toxic unhealthy person is attractive and they change miraculously by the love of a good woman by the end of the movie whereas a very decent person who treats her right is boring and bland and vanilla and i keep saying there's nothing sexier than integrity there's nothing there's nothing more powerful than that and uh you you look at and, and you don't need characters to be deeply flawed or broken to be interesting and if they're deeply flawed and, flawed and broken can we have them on a redemptive healing journey yeah. but I, I look at captain america when the winter soldier look at that film you have, just like Chris Reeve's Superman, you have this really moral, honest, kind character of integrity in a really messed up world. Uh, Bruce Wayne in the Dark Knight trilogy is the same way, right? Mm -hmm. And that is fascinating and that's compelling and we need more examples of that. Yeah. Okay, so especially since you brought up superhero movies, I w I've wanted to kind of ask you about this. So I'm wondering if this means this this perspective that you have of viewing films and and kind of analyzing okay are these healthy relationships is this um you know uh toxic not toxic i'm wondering if there's if it's the only way or if there's another viable way to watch films and let me just give one example from no one of your this is the, it this is the way joel one of the popular videos that you you guys have uh ranked the relationships you took several disney relationships right yeah. and you ranked them from from worst to best okay and i think the worst or second worst was snow white yeah yep. okay and her relationship with with the prince and and i didn't disagree with your analysis through that lens, right? Right. So, but interestingly enough, I also recently um, watched an interview with Jordan Peterson, another therapist, yeah, um, who's very interested in, in art and cinema, and his analysis of Snow White was different in that it was a fairy tale and therefore archetypal and um, more like a parable. He was analyzing from a parable uh, standpoint, so he wasn't looking at it as like, oh, this is an actual relationship this is a stand-in for something and it means something uh you know it's bigger or different it's not supposed to represent an actual this is the way the relationship was but it's it's a placeholder for saying there's this love story going on yeah i do think fewer people actually look at movies that way. They don't look at it <laughs> symbolically. I don't but know that, that a lot of people way? are like reading their Jung and then watching the movie. <laughs> exactly. But, uh, but is it a viable way? And, and, and can you put on different hats and say, I'm going to look through it, look at this movie through this lens. And now I'm going to look at it through a different lens. Like, or what do you think? Is it so implicit into the movie that it's going to affect us whether we want it to or not in a negative way? If, if that negative relationship is there. I, I have thoughts, but I want to hear yours if you... Yeah, I, uh, listen, uh, art belongs, like, once once the artist hands it off, it belongs to the audience, right? And so any read that any individual person takes from watching a film is a valid read because that was their experience of watching the movie. And their experience is what's important. Yeah. And so I'm sure there are tons of people who have watched Snow White, which is a 
like textbook horrible relationship and they've watched it and drawn lessons that have improved their yeah. their interpersonal relationships and maybe you know like in our case we were looking at the negatives and like don't do this <laughs> and i'm sure there are lots of people who watched it and you know maybe cognitively and maybe not got that archetypal thing and were were seeing okay this is how this can apply to my life and it made a positive change in their life i know snow white is a favorite movie for millions of people it's a beautiful film and you know tells a fun story and there's dwarves who, who doesn't love singing dwarves i do um, exactly <laughs> joel does so joel, he really does he really he's does. known for that he, yeah, yeah, okay that's one of his things uh, you see me after <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know i'm i'm not gonna just blanket disagree i i think that uh you know the the beauty of art is that it's open to interpretation yeah and my my quick piggyback off of that is there's two extreme reactions to film and art that i strongly disagree with one is we have to extremely limit anything we consume because it affects us so deeply and it will cause us to change and, and act out in terrible ways. And the other is it doesn't affect us at all. Yep. Obviously it affects us. That's why, that's why we're going, that's why we're going. And that's why filmmakers get paid by products for product placement because, and you know, because it, because what we watch affects us. But the fact is you just need to watch with your brain turned on. Yeah. I love healthy relationships. I also love James Bond. Those don't really go together. And I remember watching James Bond as a teenager with my dad and I'm a teenage boy and my hormones are raging and I'm, seeing all these beautiful women. I'm thinking James Bond is super cool. And my dad said one thing. He just said, you know, as long as James keeps sleeping around, he's never going to be as happy as I am with your mom. That's it. <laughs> and it completely like snapped James Bond into like, oh, yeah, he is like what a he sad can, boy. <laughs> I'm like, but he can outrun machine gun fire, right? Sure, this right. isn't reality. And so when I watch James Bond, I'm like, this is an escape. And it's fine for and it's fine to enjoy it as an escape. When we we yep. poo pooed all over Twilight, but we also said, look, if you love Twilight, enjoy it as like your junk food entertainment, but don't model your relationships after it. Yeah. And so you absolutely can like all you need to do is just is just be critically thinking, just even just a little bit, just right. a tiny just mindful. Bit. Yeah. yeah, I like that. So so how do you? What's the responsibility of the filmmaker or or maybe even of the parent? Like how do you encourage that intentional that intentionality, you yeah. know, when it comes to consuming media of any kind, but of something like we've been talking about how impactful um the messages of movies can be. You know, and you mentioned watching James Bond with your dad and he just took that moment to shift your perspective. Do we need to do that? Like yeah. if we don't do that, is there a place for that protectionism of like, you know what, this film, you shouldn't go there. You know, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Sure. If as parents, you don't have the time to necessarily police every single thing and like sit and watch every single thing with your kids, common sense media, the British rating system, the American rating system, if you have to fall back on something like you can, you can rely on those things at least a little bit, but the, uh, and, and to your question about, yeah. you know, how, how responsible should filmmakers be to that? I, I don't know that. I would want to limit filmmakers in the stories they want to tell. Sure. And that includes, you know, depicting truly horrifying things because sure. sometimes you can depict a truly horrifying thing that changes a character and leads them to growth or changes a character and leads them to their own destruction, but you can learn from that. Yeah. You know, the Wolf of Wall Street is not a like play-by-play -play manual for how to live your life. It is a fascinating look at a guy absolutely destroying everything around him. And that's what it's meant to be. I don't think Martin yeah. Scorsese has to be out there saying over and over and over again, don't model yourself on this guy. He portraying put it on the screen. Yeah, portraying something isn't condoning it. Correct. Yeah. So I, I don't know that, that 
filmmakers necessarily have to limit what they're doing. I, I would appreciate in the marketing of films, uh, a, a, maybe a little bit more like discussion of, you know, what is the filmmaker's intent here? Yeah. What are the things that we're trying to learn here? And obviously, you know, in the marketing, uh, who is this for who's going to benefit? Yeah. You know, well, and I, I, with my kids, they say, dad, can I watch, let's say back to the future, right? Language, sexual themes, classic film, lots of uplifting, wonderful themes. Dad, can I watch back to the future? You can watch it with me. Yep. Okay. Right. There, there are certain films that my kids have free reign on. There are other films that they, I'm like, you, if you choose to watch Pulp Fiction when you're 17, knock yourself out. I'm not super going for Pulp Fiction here in our house when you're a minor. It's not happening. I'm sorry. Uh, if, and, and then other films, I'm like, yeah, you can watch that, but you're going to watch it with me because we're going to talk about things. And, and to, the, to the point of your question, there are movies that I watch that don't necessarily share my values one-to-one -one, per se, sure. but I watch them with my kids and we talk about, okay, how did this choice affect the character? Or how did this choice affect the character in the film? And what do you think would happen in real life? In real life. That choice, yeah. right? And, uh, and, and it's also an opportunity to understand the viewpoints of people who believe differently or see the world differently. And so I don't think we need to, to shield children from everything. I think we need to give them context. I know of families where their kids uh, can watch bloody horror movies, but then afterwards they watch the making of, and they see yeah. a bunch of people on crew goofing around with corn syrup and- This is my kid. Yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have one child who is obsessed with making of processes and like his favorite thing is the thing. Which the is movie. horrifying, yeah, yeah. right? Absolutely gross. But he's just obsessed with the mechanical, like how did they design the monsters? Right. How did they pump all the goo and the blood? Like how did they make this happen? <laughs> so, so just a side question, because I'm totally curious. I grew up with a mother who didn't watch movies with us very often, but when she did, it always seemed like she was ruining it. But like, did you see that? Did you see how, whatever? Yeah. Are your kids excited when you say, you can watch that with me? Or are they like, dad? We don't talk about it during. Okay, okay. I, I, I very much respect the <laughs> the experience, the experience yeah. but we're going to talk about it after. Yeah. We're, we're both movie theater shushers. We will shush people. <laughs> yeah. We will shush our own children in our basements. But you go out for ice cream after going to a movie that yeah, there's stuff to talk about. Yeah. And it's a bonding experience. And, and it also teaches them critical thinking and to explore their own morality. And that's powerful. Yes. Yeah, so I think it's interesting because as I, you know, you mentioned a lot of movies, Wolf of Wall Street, Back to the Future. You know, it's interesting because my, my guess is, this is just a guess, I, I don't know the filmmakers personally, but my guess is Martin Scorsese, knowing Mar a little bit about Martin Scorsese, he probably was intentional in saying this is kind of a cautionary tale. This is, I want to show oh, a very person so. destructing. Yeah. Whereas in the case of Back to the Future, I'm just using those examples because they're uh -huh. what you used. My guess is that wasn't intentional. They were just trying to tell a fun movie and yeah. it's up to the parents to kind of say, hey, do you see what's going on here, um, th the bad stuff that's going on here that you shouldn't uh, learn from? So it does sound, for the most part, some filmmakers might put it into the movie um, or at least it becomes evident in the movie making that what you should be taking from it. But some, it's, it's totally our responsibility to draw from it what we will. Would you yeah. agree with that? I mean, ultimately, it's it's the audience's responsibility. The, the audience is responsible for what they consume and how they consume it. I, I as a filmmaker, cannot dictate to an audience, right. this is, you know, I do my best. This is what you're going to feel right now. Right, right. <laughs> That's my job. But everybody's different, right? 
people are going to have different reactions and, to different and things. I think personally I think that's good I'm curious you Alan you're a filmmaker I'm I'm wondering if you feel like there's too much concern for the message by filmmakers or if, if you had to say one way or the other and obviously every film's different but if you had to say one way or the other, do you feel like filmmakers right now are too too concerned for the messaging or not enough concerned for what's being communicated by the film? My opinion, I think by and large studio heads are more concerned with content than messaging. I think most people who make well, films- content as it affects bottom line, generally. A, yeah, okay. People who make films, directors, and especially writers, writers are, especially if they're doing something from the heart, they're trying to convey something, right? And this is, this is why, you know, sometimes we talk about on the show, there's a difference between Disney corporate and Disney creative uh, because people can talk about the decisions of Disney corporate all they want. But I look at some of the films we've reviewed over the past few years, particularly like Coco comes to mind, mm -hmm. right? And I, and, I, and I think of the, the sheer beautiful power of the message of that film. And that was very deliberate. That was somebody who's trying to share something that uplifts and builds hope and encourages connection, right? And so to answer your question, I don't think there is a too much or too little. I think it's case by case. I would just love to see a renaissance where creatives are set loose and then the market determines, okay, this is what we're interested in. Yeah, I guess, and I guess one of the reasons why I ask is because <clears throat> as I work at Angel Studios, I read a lot of scripts and I mm -hmm. frequently feel that the, the story completely suffers from too much thought about message mm, too much message. Yeah. they don't think about story and, that's and, a, and my argument is and, and i think what you've said about how we glean from from films anyway would support this idea which is the idea that whatever story you tell it's going to have message it's going to have lessons whether you try and insert it or not yeah yeah and in some way just by telling a great story that will happen naturally and you don't have to shoehorn in well this is what i hope the audience takes from it yeah, yeah. and that this is a, a particular problem that i find in faith-based film there's a lot of slapping people in the face with the message when if you tell a good story you can get that same message across without hitting people in the face with it and yeah. there's there's nothing wrong with being fairly direct about messaging and and there are plenty of faith-based films that do a really good job of that what's the the joseph fines one where he's the centurion uh oh um Risen. Risen. Did you finally watch that? I did. It's good, huh? It's really, really good. And it's, you know, it's pretty in your face about like, hey, Jesus is the savior and he came back and he rose from the grave. And I mean, it literally knocks a guy over on camera. <laughs> Couldn't get more obvious than that. Right. But, you know, as, as in terms of like, this is the message of the movie, but it does it in a way that is engaging and entertaining and believable. You believe the character on his journey through this story. Okay, so I want to go back to Disney films. You mentioned Pixar and yeah. how Pixar is great, especially you classic Disney films. Maybe we don't, or or maybe you do want to opine on on uh, contemporary Disney films as well. What's your What's your take on the the classic Disney library generally? Is it Is it mostly a lot of bad lessons for our kids in terms <laughs> of relationships, or or is there something to value there? I think if you look at sort of the, the Disney princess movies, the, the classic Disney princess movies, there's every single one has good lessons that can be drawn. Uh, sometimes you got to dig for them. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at the Disney classic library as a whole, not just the princess films, I think by and large, there's a reason they're classics. Yeah. They're, they're great stories, well told with interesting characters. And you can, you can draw a lot of good lessons. You can draw a lot of bad lessons as well. Like don't do that. Mm-hmm. But it's all for the most part, I find that it's, a, there's a reason they're classics. Yeah. And one, I think it, it comes again to critical thinking, teaching kids. Cause we, we put kids in front of Disney films and we're like done. Go Disney. I did it. I parented Just because the content is clean. Because the content right. is clean. And, right. that, and that's the issue with, you know, the, the faith subculture that I grew up in is it's very focused on making sure what's not in it, that these things are absent instead of what's present. Right. And, and, I, and I think, and this is something, again, that I think Angel Studios does fairly well is, okay, we're going to make something that the family can enjoy, but we're also not just going to make pop, uh, cotton candy, right? right. And we're not going to make fluff. And so when it comes to Disney, it's kind of like, okay, the classics have ideas and pretty blatant racism and some other things that sure. that you look at today and it's like we're in a this different place. This did not age well. Yeah. But and the thing about this didn't age well is I, I I love to look at it like look at how far we've come, right? Yeah. And so that even that's an opportunity to have a conversation. And so you look at Peter Pan. What makes the red man red? Not great, but also Peter Pan's wonderful. Right. And 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 I think we can I think we can exist in a world where art and artists and people have ideas or concepts that we disagree with, and we still gain value from their perspectives and from their creation. I don't think we have to say, you know, this has that in it, so I'm going to throw the whole thing out. I think we can say, well, I'll look at that critically, and say, yeah, this is not something I attach to, and here's why. But look at all of this, and that's powerful. And that's kind of the opposite of what I was raised. I was raised with, well, if it's got a if it's got a swear word in it, that's like a cockroach in an ice cream sundae, and you just got to throw the whole thing right, out. And right. I'm like, eh, it's I, still ninety eight percent ice cream. <laughs> I really like ice cream. I'm just gonna think about that. Yeah, cockroach. I never thought that that metaphor holds up very well with art and stories and things like that. So good can be gleaned from. Like we're saying, almost anything, you know. Um, yeah. have, I'm curious in your practice, have you ever come across someone or do you know anyone personally who it seems like what they take in is always the wrong thing? Like either, <laughs> you know, like their expectation in life is always based in like some Hollywood fantasy, you know, uh-huh. and, and your job is to say, no, Hollywood has done you wrong by this messaging that you've received. Stephanie, I'm feeling really called out right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know somebody. <laughs> You can't control what people take from it, you know? There, there are a lot of people who are saying, well, I don't want the X-Men because the X-Men are, are too woke now. And it's like, well, the X-Men were always about standing against prejudice and bigotry. Like, that is the through line of the X-Men. Yeah, sure. And so, and so you, have, you, you have people who are not taking the message that was intended. Uh, but that is, again, art interacts with the consumer, Right, just and it's the same thing, not just art, but people. I can I can get up and I can give a talk in my church, and I can say this is this is the intention that I'm putting this out there with, but then it meets the listener, and the listener may take it through a completely different filter. And there have been many times on our show where because we're dealing with people who have endured trauma, we're dealing with people who have endured prejudice in, in our fan base, we're dealing with people who have been misjudged and mislabeled, misunderstood, and hated. And we may say something not even thinking of how that's going to land with this person, that person, or the other person. That it was never intended to be hurtful. And when we get that feedback, we could say, well, you took that the wrong way. And try to blame them. And try to blame them. Or we could say, oh, well, let's meet where we can say, honestly, that was not our intent. But we see that we did that, and we want to make the change. 
right? And I that happens in therapy. If I if I try something in therapy and okay. it completely yeah. backfires, I have to recognize, okay, that is part where they're coming from. That's also part me misreading what approach was going to work here. And I think art is a similar thing. It is 100% similar, yeah. But you can't go back and change the film, or you could, but people don't. Mm -hmm. um, George Lucas has. Not to his benefit. Everything. <laughs> so much better now. Uh, so sorry, <laughs> sorry for hurting you both with that. No, it's, yeah, thanks for bringing up sore subject. But I mean, um, I guess that this reopens the question, though. How responsible is the filmmaker? Because we've said that look, the audience is responsible for what they take from it. But then we're saying, are are they really? And well, when is the filmmaker responsible if they are? In my view, filmmaking is not a dialogue. It's a monologue. It is a filmmaker telling a story. Right. And it is being told to a person. I think the that's... Way the, the way the viewer receives that is going to vary viewer to viewer. Right. But it is... I do not believe it is my responsibility as a filmmaker to change my monologue for every single individual person in the audience. Yeah. Um, because I'm telling the story that I want to tell. And, and then when it comes to other things like Oliver Stone, I never saw Natural Born Killers, but Oliver Stone makes this movie Natural Born Killers about serial killers on a killing spree, and, it, and people took that and actually acted out violently. And his intent was to criticize our obsession with violence and violent people. It was never meant to glamorize. Yeah. It was meant to point a finger at the people who glamorize it. Um, you can never 100% tell what somebody is going to do with your art or how they're going to respond to it. How often do you find a film, like a single film, mm. that really changes a person's mind, heart, or behavior? Or is it more typically, um, and, and if, if there are other examples of that, maybe Natural Born Killers or, or others, for better or for worse, yeah. um, is it more the diet, like a consistent diet of a kind of messaging or a kind of film that changes us? Oh, I don't know if either of us are qualified to answer that. Uh, no, I, I will say that in, in my anecdotal experience, uh, every movie that I know of that has gotten sort of a major release, so it's been seen by millions of people, every single movie has had a dramatic impact on somebody. Uh, mm -hmm. and that, that is a responsibility as a filmmaker that I take very, very seriously. Anytime I'm making something that I know is going to be seen by more than, you know, 12 people, uh, I, I think very hard about, you know, what I'm putting into this because it is going to affect someone. Yeah. Um, the, the, the sort of pithy version of that is every movie is somebody's favorite movie well psychologically we change more through the steady diet through sure. the repetition through through the small things that happen day after day after day after day after day um for good or bad bruce wayne batman begins people need dramatic examples to shake them out of apathy sure and so it is true just like in life something major can happen that really gets you thinking and re-examining and wanting to make changes uh, but oftentimes it's the pileup of the small things that you don't notice until you can't ignore it anymore and I think that's the same way with the diet of what we consume in media. I, I think Schindler's List, for example, has the power to be, you could go into that movie and come out three hours later, radically changed. A very different person. But, but by and large, it's going to be slow and steady. So, so I'm curious, Alan, uh, what, what do you feel like, um, and as a patient, right, what do you feel like you get in therapy that you can't get from film? And maybe a related question, as you watch and you are trying to 
analyze these relationships or the, the behaviors of people, do you ever find yourself going, gosh, I wish I could ask them some questions about their experience, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Sure. What I get from therapy that I can't get from film is discussions specifically about me with a person who has uh, training and in her case, two decades of experience um, working with people, understanding psychology and, and helping people through problems that are not the same as mine, but similar. Uh, and that's, that's a, that's what I love about therapy so much is the ability to it's it's cheat codes for mental development <laughs> is is all it is. I'm just skipping level seven and I'm going right to level eight. Right. It's going down the right tube in Mario. It's exactly yeah. what it is. Yeah. yeah. No, I go through the little underground thing, then I pop up and you got it. Yeah. Okay. You know the reference. <laughs> um, do I wish I could ask characters questions on screen that I'm watching or guide them through things? Is that is that the or, yeah. or wish that maybe their experience was portrayed a little bit differently? You know, addressed yeah. slightly. Di you know, like oh, this could be so good if they only had yeah. said this or done that or shown yeah. that scene that maybe they cut. Yeah. yeah, more more that less. I'll tell you why I don't I don't sit there and, and think I wish I could counsel or ask questions of, of fictional characters. Because I already do that on the show. <laughs> so if I'm watching a movie, then I'm, I'm usually just watching. The second thing, though, is in real life, I, people say, do you ever see couples like arguing in a restaurant and wish you could just jump in and help? And I always say no. <laughs> I'm off the clock. I'm off the clock, number one. Number two, it, this, and this is very sacred to me, um, I don't insert myself into the affairs of other people unless I'm invited to. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, I'm just... Uh, a insufferable know-it-all in the words of Severus Snape, right? And, and, and so it's just kind of, and so I, I don't do that with real people, much less people who aren't real, right? you know? Uh, but, but definitely, I, I think, and I think probably Alan might think this more because he, he explores like how would he have done it? I am an insufferable know-it-all. <laughs> <laughs> well, you think of how, how you would do it as a filmmaker, right? Yes, all the time. Um, I watch it sometimes and I think, oh, like that could have landed more if they had done it this way, you know? So. And landed more for, from like the the psychological benefit gleaned from this moment could have been stronger. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I, yeah, Joel as a filmmaker talks about that. Like if only they had. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, and I, I do it with not just films. I'm sh as I'm sure you do also, but I anything, books, Everything. ballets, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm constantly criticizing things. It's, I'm an insufferable know-it-all. It's terrible. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alan and Jono for being here and sharing your experience and expertise absolutely thank you lightwise is a video, video podcast, podcast production of angel studios, studios released every other tuesday, tuesday. If, if you'd like, like to watch episodes of lightwise download, download the angel app wherever you get your apps to learn more and to watch light amplifying content for free go to angel.com this episode of lightwise was hosted by joel ackerman it was written and directed by joel ackerman produced by cameron jackson and john j van sickle and edited by cameron jackson with sound recording by Garrett Briggs and sound mixing by Brian Densley. 